0: Hey, friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode.
1: Food 2.0 is about commerce. It's about the buying and selling of goods. That's what Baskin-Robbins is all based on. And low prices, good flavor, and high volume are the keys. And it's killing us. So food 3.0 is about health. Health for our bodies and health for our planet. And I think there's healthy profits in it. I've spoken with senior executives from Nestle and Mars, and what they're trying to do is diversify. So they're buying up the natural brands that have a different kind of market penetration. So you know, Coca-Cola bought Honest Tea and took it to scale by using their huge distribution platform. And whether that's good or bad is arguable. But one thing it does do is take away some of the conflict of interest, where now they're just trying to make a buck rather than trying to push the consumer towards junk food. food. food.
0: That's Ocean Robbins. and And this is episode 165 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey, beautiful friends. Welcome back to another episode. Here we are. An absolute pleasure to be here with you. And for those who are tuning in for the first time, thank you so much for finally joining us, gracing us with your presence. I'm Simon Hill, host of this show, nutritionist, physiotherapist, and author. Please do sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Ocean Robbins, it's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Well, thanks for having me on, Simon.
0: I've been aware of you for quite some time now and and have really admired the work that you do along with your dad uh, with the Food Revolution Network. And, and when Darren Olean connected us, I was I was very excited to, to make this happen. You have quite the story going all the way back to your father's decision to walk away from an ice cream empire. Can you walk me through how all of this unfolded?
1: Well, absolutely. So, uh, as as you know, my grandpa, Irvin Robbins, founded an ice cream company. It was called Baskin Robbins or 31 Flavors. It became the world's largest ice cream company. And uh, my dad, John, was groomed from early childhood to one day join and running that company. He grew up with an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool in the backyard and 31 flavors of ice cream in the freezer. As he got a little older, he realized that ice cream was maybe a treat, but it was causing some problems. His own uncle, my grandpa's brother-in-law and business partner, Burt Baskin, was dying of heart disease, ended up passing away at the age of 54. And, you know, as my dad was learning more, he said, you know what, I can't spend my life selling a product that might contribute to more kids like his cousins losing their parents too soon. And so he ended up walking away from a path that was practically paved with gold and ice cream to follow his own rocky road, as we say in our family, rocky road being one of the Baskin Robbins flavors, of course. And uh, he ended up moving to a little island off the coast of British Columbia, Canada, where he and my mom built a one-room log cabin. They grew most of their own food. They practiced yoga and meditation for several hours a day, and they named their kid Ocean. And they almost named me Kale, by the way, and this is before Kale was cool. <laughs> On behalf of my social life, I'm grateful they took the more conservative route when they named their son. But we did eat a lot of kale and cabbage and carrots and other veggies from the garden. And, and um, you know, as I got older, we ended up moving to California. And my dad ended up researching the food industry in which he'd grown up and coming out with a book in 1987. It was called Diet for a New America, and it inspired millions of people to look at their food choices as a chance to make a difference on the planet. It became this runaway bestseller. The media called him The Rebel Without a Cone. And uh, you know, out of all of his readers, one of them ended up being my grandpa, Irvin Robbins, who was practically on death's door around the age of 70, When his doctor tells him, Mr. Robbins, you don't have long to live unless you make big changes. He had serious diabetes and heart issues and weight issues. He gave him a copy of Diet for a New America. My grandpa reads it. He follows its advice. He ended up slashing his uh, sugar consumption almost to nothing, cutting way down on animal products, eating way more whole plant foods. He actually gave up ice cream and he got results. I mean, tremendous results. He lost a bunch of weight. He reversed his diabetes and his heart disease, got off all these medications he would had been told he would need for the rest of his life, lived another 19 more healthy years. His golf game even improved seven strokes. So my grandpa was a happy camper. And you know, we've seen in our family that when we follow the standard American diet, or Australian diet too, I suppose, you know, we we get the standard American or Australian diseases, which is kind of sad, you know, but when we make changes, we can get tremendous results. And so, you know, I was inspired by my grandpa's legacy of changing the world in a big way following his dreams, and my dad's story of integrity, and wound up on my own path, you know, becoming a leader in this movement. And I feel so grateful to have, had a couple of giants and honestly my grandpa's biggest achievement in my opinion wasn't just starting a big company it was having the courage to make changes and showing the rest of us what's possible tell me
0: about your grandpa a little more i find it interesting that your dad wrote this incredible book you know it was it was groundbreaking stuff really and he was leading the way you know and, and as you said the media described him as a rebel I'm curious because sometimes it can be hard to influence those in our family, in our close circles, right? And it sounds like from your story, your dad had spoken to his dad, your grandpa about this. Did it take the doctor to really land the message?
1: So true, you know, and and isn't that often the case, you know? So literally my dad had given his dad a copy of his book, signed, autographed when it came out, hardcover. Uh, His doctor gave him a copy that wasn't signed, that was softcover. You know, and guess which one my grandpa read—not <laughs> 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 the autograph copy from his son, but the other one the doctor gave him. You know, and you know, isn't that often the case? We don't we don't tend to listen to the people closest to us, but a lot of people listen to their doctors, and uh, the tragedy is that uh, the trust we place in our doctors isn't always well placed. The average physician gets about 19 hours of coursework in nutrition in all of their years of medical school. In the US, where I live, less than a third of the medical schools in the country have a single required course in nutrition. So, most doctors graduate knowing a lot about drugs and surgeries, and very little about what to eat and how to live to prevent needing those drugs or surgeries in the first place. And the the truth is, Simon, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But, or maybe more, maybe a ton of cure. But uh, our medical system is all focused on solving problems that probably didn't need to happen. So my grandpa got really lucky to have a physician who was on the leading edge and who had frankly read my dad's book and knew what it said.
0: And in terms of your grandpa's diet, was it the same as the standard American diet today where sort of 60% of calories are coming from ultra processed foods or what did it look like in in sort of that period? Have you spoken to your grandpa or your dad about what were the regular meals they were eating as they were sort of growing up as a family?
1: It was pretty conventional. I mean, honestly, Food in the 50s and 60s and and 70s in the U.S. wasn't as hyper-processed as it is today, but it was pretty well steering in that direction. You know, there was nothing organic. All the flour was white flour, loads of sugar, loads of processed meats, lots of hot dogs, lots of standard American kind of junk foody kinds of things. And I can remember visiting, and you know, my grandma was seriously not interested in any of this, and uh, I remember visiting when I was, oh, about 9, 10 years old, before my dad had become a best-selling author. And she literally said, you will not cook tofu in my kitchen. And uh, that was a rule. She was putting down her foot. So we actually had to stay separately, rent a little place nearby, and prepare food separately while we're visiting. Because she didn't, wouldn't let us eat the food we wanted to eat in her home. And uh, she was not going to budge.
0: That must've had its challenges. I can imagine as a young family, you move to this island off of Canada, which I can only imagine would have been a fairly different way of living than the standard American or Canadian was, was living at the time. Can you paint the picture for the listeners of what life was like for you on the island? How did you spend your time as a family? What were the activities that you guys would get up to?
1: I mean, life was so simple back then. It was like, you know, it's interesting how much time we spend focused on money in the modern world, whether it's earning money or spending money, and then doing the activities to use the things that we've spent money on. And when you cut all that away, you know, we lived very simply. You know, a lot of time gardening, a lot of time practicing yoga and meditation, going for walks singing songs. My mom and dad would, you know, talk about their dreams. They remembered like five dreams every night and they talk about them every morning, you know? So there was a lot of time and space to just kind of be, you know? I played with blocks and it's very simple toys. We had a few records I'd listen to, but it was mostly uh, connecting with nature. And I had a few friends, you know? But it was a very different life than most of us have in the modern world. It's so packed with activities and things to do. And, you know, we spend a lot of time trying to recover from the stress that comes from trying to earn money. Work tends to take its toll on a lot of us in the modern world. And then our free time, so to speak, our leisure time is more about recovery, from the stress of that you know and then we get up and do it again and uh it's very different when you are living life on a different rhythm where your cup is full where you have plenty of time and we had very little money so it's an interesting trade-off right and I'm very grateful that my foundational years were were spent in such a setting now I'm raising twins they're 20 now uh I can't say that we've exactly created the idyllic life I grew up in in that sense they've had a much more in-the-world kind of experience, but I still have a basic place in my heart where I value experiences and relationships more than things. And I'll say the same is true with food. To me, food is medicine. To me, food is, is nourishment first. It's entertainment second or third. And I think a lot of us look to food for short-term pleasure, and that can, it can provide that. But if it doesn't nourish us first, then in the long run, we're creating a vicious circle where we're less healthy, we're less alive, we're less vital, and then we get less pleasure from everything in life, which sometimes makes us look for it more from food, but get less from it.
0: I was going to ask you about your kids and being a dad today. So what are some of the, I guess, values that your parents sort of instilled in you as a kid that you've thought about when you've been parenting, you know, in a different environment, in a more sort of urban environment? What are some of those, those key values that have been important to consider?
1: Well, uh, number one is love. You know, I mean, I think that's true in every relationship that uh, when we come from a place of love, We always stand for that, Uh, we can help to create a much healthier relationship experience. You know, I saw some friends of mine had a little poster up above the kitchen sink. It said, The dishes can wait, play with your children. And, you know, I think a lot of times we do it the opposite. We're like, Okay, I'll play with my kids after the dishes are done and the house is clean and everything's set. But guess what? By the time all that's done, you're exhausted and your kids might be falling apart or thinking you don't love them because you weren't there when they were there. So the key thing is, don't miss the moments of connection that are available because you don't know how many of them you'll get. So as a parent or a grandparent or an aunt or an uncle, when you got a little person in your life, when they reach out to you, when they ask you a real question, when they're available for real connection, don't miss that moment, you know? And then do the dishes and the other stuff at times when they're not available for contact. So that's one of the principles. Uh, My parents did always prioritize me. I felt that creating a good life for their son was number one for them. And I've tried to share that with my children as well. And you know, something happens when a child grows up that way, which is that they have a foundation of self-love and self-respect. They know that they're loved in the world. And I wonder how many of us go through our lives feeling fundamentally deep down, there's something wrong or broken about us. Some kind of deep current of self-hate or, or self-doubt that maybe stems from moments of kind of trauma when we didn't feel that we were the top priority growing up think that's a a very important learning.
0: I know myself, you know, you can you can get caught up. I don't have kids, but I know with my parents you can get caught up in this mindset of I'm busy, I'll chat to them tomorrow. And it's it's quite easy to repetitively do that. And you do over time you really do lose all of those special chances for connection. Let's change gears a tiny bit here. Tell me about the formation of the Food Revolution Network. How did this all come about? And what's the core, I guess, mission that you and your father have with this network?
1: So we launched Food Revolution Network in 2012. It's been almost 10 years now. And our mission is healthy, ethical, and sustainable food for all. You know, we live in a toxic food culture where all around us, junk food is normalized and quite frankly, it's subsidized. And it's, it's considered typical to eat foods that are statistically correlated with increased risk of diabetes and heart disease and cancer and Alzheimer's, obesity and, and feeling like crap. And I'm interested in helping shift that. And my dad was a best-selling author. His books had sold millions of copies. But he didn't have an email list. He didn't really even know what Facebook was. And... I was interested in helping this message reach a whole new generation. You know, when I was 16, I founded a nonprofit called Yes, working with young leaders around the world. I worked with leaders in 65 countries for 20 years, focused on leadership development and grassroots organizing and and empowerment. And I saw as I traveled the globe for 20 years that everybody eats and that what we're eating is having this huge impact on our health and on our planet. You know, I worked with indigenous leaders in the rainforest, whose homeland is being destroyed for cattle ranching. You know, I worked with indigenous leaders in the Arctic, whose way of life is threatened by climate change, which, guess what, is linked to those rainforests falling and the same cattle down in the Amazon. I worked with people all over the planet who are watching their hospitals filling up from lifestyle-induced illness as they eat more like us in the industrialized world. And so I eventually realized I've got to focus on food. So I decided to join with my dad to see if we could take this message of whole foods, plant-based eating to a new generation using modern technology. So we launched this online company. We decided to deliver everything virtually so we could really scale it and put on Food Revolution Summits. And now we produce courses and we have a website with millions of visitors. And we send out about 150 million emails a year to our to our newsletter followers And, you know, we have big goals. We want to change the way the world eats. We want to change the way the world produces and grows food so that it ceases to be the largest source of environmental destruction on the planet. So it ceases to fuel, you know, millions and millions of deaths every year from preventable chronic illness and so that it becomes an expression of health.
0: Let's dig in first here into the Health side of our food choices, and then we can jump into sustainability and food systems. I think that's also very interesting to explore and something I know you speak a lot about. You regularly talk about foods that lead to more energy, to better sleep, to a stronger immune system, foods that are anti-carcinogenic, etc. What does this look like? What constitutes a a health-promoting diet and Are there any particular foods that you think are absolute standouts?
1: Oh, absolutely. Okay, so what constitutes a health-promoting diet at its core is going to be foods that are loaded with phytonutrients, antioxidants, the vitamins and minerals you need, of course. We talk a lot about macronutrients like protein and fat and carbohydrates. Those are important, and you want healthy sources of them. But we also have to look at all the micronutrients that make up You know, a really nutrient-packed diet. And so bottom line is, time and time again, vegetables are the superstars and fruits are a close second. Uh, When we look at the blue zones, the places in the world where people traditionally live the longest and healthiest lives, like Okinawa, Japan, Loma Linda, California in the United States, parts of Costa Rica, parts of Greece, there are specific regions, specific pockets that have been studied for their longevity where people consistently live 10, 15 years longer than their fellow uh, citizens of the same countries, you know, a zip code or two away. And what we see these places have in common is that they're all places where people eat a predominantly, if not entirely, whole foods, plant-based diet. They get most or all of their calories from plants, foods, not from animal products. They eat very little or no sugar or processed junk, They all get lots of exercise, they all have strong social ties and love in their relationships, and they have ways of bringing down stress or bringing up faith in some way in their lives. And so, as Dr. Dean Ornish puts it, we need to eat better, stress less, love more, and move more. And that's the basic principles that we see. He came to those principles with the Ornish program uh, in the United States for studies, and it turns out those are the same principles that have been being practiced all over the world by the longest lived peoples on the planet. And so those are the big principles that we try to focus on. And when it comes to food specifically, some of the top superfoods are again, gonna be vegetables like lots and lots of vegetables of all different kinds. You want a lot of diversity. There's no one like food, you should just eat that although some are super loaded with nutrients like kale, collards, all of the cruciferous vegetables. Cabbage is amazing, but there's also incredible value in the alliums. Onions and garlic are incredibly potent health boosters. Mushrooms are hugely powerful. Uh, There was a study done by researchers in New Zealand. They found that when women ate about a mushroom a day equivalent, a third of an ounce or more of mushrooms per day, they reduced their breast cancer risk by 64%. Their odds of dying of breast cancer. When those same women also drank green tea daily, their risk dropped by 89% over the 10 years of the study. And you think about it, if there was some new drug that came out that could drop your risk of breast cancer by 89%, I mean, you see people going crazy over it, right? It might become mandatory. But here we are, and it's just mushrooms and green tea. Well, guess what? There's no, there's no mushroom and green tea lobby that has the kind of money to like force it down our throats. And, and doctors can't even prescribe it because guess what? Doctors can't prescribe anything natural. They can only prescribe things that are patentable. That's all that insurance will reimburse. So uh, even though they're cheap... And even though they're widely affordable and available, we're not seeing them widely recommended or utilized like they could be, even though they could do so much good. So those are some of the top things. And then legumes are also powerful. They're the one sort of basic staple that we see in all of the Blue Zones. Uh, Sweet potatoes are amazing, interestingly enough. Potatoes in general are fine, but sweet potatoes are, are a whole other thing. And, uh, and then whole grains, you know, they're a little controversial. Some people knock grains, obviously they're not popular with the paleo community. But when I look at the studies, the data on whole grains is extremely positive. And I'm not talking about Wonder Bread here. I'm talking about whole grains, you know, and ideally uh, not even wheat, but like quinoa, buckwheat, millet, amaranth. Some of these are called pseudograins because they're not technically grains. They're the seeds of grasses or seeds of other plants. They're fascinating. So these are some of the things we really want to base our diet around. Now, you don't have to make the perfect into the enemy of the good. I'm not saying you need to sign a purity pact in order to take steps towards a healthier life, but I am saying there are steps you can take and they matter. How important is the
0: sort of organic versus conventional conversation, where your food is sourced from, how it's grown? Tell me what you think about in terms of food quality, cost, access, and and sustainability when we're talking about the farming practice, how these, these plants are grown.
1: Purely from a health perspective, there are probably some advantages to organically growing foods over foods that are grown with pesticides and synthetic fertilizers, and that may be genetically engineered. The pesticide exposure is certainly uh, driving a lot of deaths in, amongst farm workers who have really high rates of cancer. So it's, if you ever heard of the canary in the coal mine, where you know coal miners would take a canary in with them, and if the canary starts dying, they know that there's gases in there and they better get out. Well, it doesn't take a coal miner to realize that if farm workers are dying in the fields from pesticide exposure, then those crops probably are having an impact on the rest of us as well. And, uh, you know, we do see some data to back it up. Some of these compounds are endocrine disruptors. Glyphosate, which is the number one herbicide on the planet, is uh, a probable carcinogen, according to the World Health Organization. Many of the insecticides are known carcinogens. It's just a question of quantity and how much you're exposed to. So there's probably some advantages there to going organic. However... Let's be clear, most of the studies showing huge benefit from eating mushrooms or onions or kale or spinach or any of these other foods were done with people who were eating conventionally grown versions of those crops. And they still reversed cancer, reversed heart disease, had lower rates of Alzheimer's, had healthier lives, had less rates of obesity. So... If you can't afford to go organic, don't let that stop you from eating lots of vegetables and whole foods. You know, if you're choosing between an organic doughnut and non-organic kale, go for the kale every time. And if you can afford to, I think the biggest argument for organic is environmental and social, not just personal health. Because organically grown foods mean less pesticides in the environment, less farm workers exposed to them in the fields. In the case of animal products, it's less animals that are pumped full of hormones and antibiotics, which means they're generally tortured in factory farms. And so from an ethical standpoint, as a human being like I am who wants to contribute to a healthier future for life on Earth, I think that organic has a lot to be said for it. And again, you do what you can, you know, if if you can eat lower on the food chain, you're doing a heck of a lot of good for the world. You know, it takes 12 pounds of grain or soy to produce one pound of feedlot beef in the United States, probably similar in Australia. So we're wasting the other 11. It takes a tremendous amount of land to produce animal agriculture. I know we're going to get into this more later, but I'll just just quickly say that if you're concerned about the environmental impact of food choices, then eating lower on the food chain is a massive step you can take there's so much less pesticides and water and topsoil erosion involved in that because there's a lot less resource inputs.
0: So we're on the same page. I have a bit of a sort of organic where possible motto, but I'm going to play devil's advocate here because I do read the, the other side. And I, I just want to see if you've given any consideration to any of this and perhaps not, it might be an open conversation for us. But sometimes I hear people suggesting that we also don't understand the effect of exposure to organic pesticides and herbicides. And just because they're not natural, the fact that they're sprayed in, in very high amounts, you know, that's not to say that they don't have a, a negative effect on our physiology. And although I guess intuitively, one would think the natural pesticide or herbicide is better, this does seem like a fairly valid point that should probably be tested by science at some point.
1: Absolutely. You know, there's a lot of lobbying that goes on when it comes to the organic standards. And we always have, you know, certain people who on those boards that are making those decisions that represent big agribusiness. Walmart has a seat at the table now, a big one, you know, as a major organic retailer. And uh, you can be sure that Walmart's interest isn't in protecting the sacred responsibility of the organic label to protect the public. Their interest is in getting as much of their food as possible organic without increasing the price one penny. And so if they can drive down the standards, then they increase the profitability and the the market share. And that's their agenda. And so there's these contrasting forces. There's the old school people who got into organics because they want to make the world a better place. And they want to preserve their farms and their topsoil and reduce water consumption and, you know, sort of do it for the right reasons, if you will. And then you've got a lot of people who are out there trying to scale it. And that's the argument. And they say, okay, we'll compromise and cut corners here or there so that we can take it to scale and bring the cost down. And that's a legitimate conversation. But we almost need gradations of organic. You know, we need another level like organic beyond organic, where we start to look at uh, is it regenerative? Are we actually you know, replenishing the topsoil? What is the impact on laborers in the fields? Are they being treated well enough that they can feed their own families? Or are they being exploited and abused or even raped in some cases, as is common in our agricultural systems? And so uh, I'm interested in looking at all of it. And for those who can afford it, we need a next level, I think, at this point, for certification, and there are various folks working on that, and at some point one of them is going to pop and kind of go more mainstream. Organic's a big step in my opinion, but there are absolutely compounds sprayed on organic produce that are not particularly safe or healthy, and we need to study them too. That said, some of the most noxious things that have been proven to be cancer-causing are banned in organic agriculture. And while we don't know for sure if the replacements are that much better, we have reason to think so. And we know for sure that what's used in conventional is not so good. So, um, you know, I think it's a step. Uh, I don't think it's the be all end all. Ideally, we'd all be growing everything in our own backyards with our own labor, you know, and watering the, the plants with rainwater catchment from our roofs, you know, and everything would be super regenerative. And, you know, we'd be composting our poop and getting it out there you know, but you know what, one step at a time, you know, and we've all got to do what we can with what we got. I
0: was watching Down to Earth, Darren's show, and uh, I'm not sure if you've seen that on Netflix, but Darren Ollie and and he, he went to Costa Rica, I think, in one of those episodes, and they were doing exactly what you just described then, you know, these beautiful fruit forests and a great community down there, but yeah, not necessarily achievable for everyone. But I think a lot of what you were just talking about, is when I think about the food system, and, and we will get to that, that is becoming increasingly more and more important is this idea of traceability and transparency, understanding the source of the food. When you're going into the grocery store, where does it come from and what's the impact on the world around you? What's the impact on the humans that were involved in the production? And the closer we can get to that, the more informed we can be when we're making these choices. And I think if people have that information, they will naturally make better choices more often. Let's slide to frozen food versus fresh. Do you have any preference for fresh or, or frozen fruits and vegetables?
1: You know, f- personally, just as a consumer, I enjoy fresh food in a way, culinarily, because it's it's got a slightly different texture and you know, it, it feels really fresh. But from a nutritional standpoint, frozen is pretty darn impressive, and here's why. With frozen food, they're able to pick it at the peak of ripeness and freeze it instantly, you know, when there's a lot of attention to speed. They don't want anything wasted or going bad on the assembly line, so it gets frozen very quickly and a lot of nutrients get locked in at that point when it's frozen. Now, frozen food can degrade very slowly. If you stick it in the back of your freezer and leave it there for five years, it's either going to be nutrient-poor or even unsafe to eat. But as long as you cycle it through reasonably quickly, you know, within a few months, say, of getting it, uh, and assuming it didn't have too long a supply chain, uh, frozen food can be exceptionally nutritious. And it can be pretty affordable. The nice thing for the food industry is that there's, there's very little waste because they're able to pick it at the peak of ripeness and go straight into the freezer. They, uh, with fresh food, there's a lot that gets thrown away along the way. Your supermarkets are throwing away maybe half their produce in some cases because they only want to stock the stuff that looks perfect out in front. And so their dumpsters in the back are just loaded with food waste. And then it gets home, and guess what? The average American family, I don't know Australia, but I'm gonna bet it's similar, waste $2,000 a year in food that just goes bad in the back of the fridge. So the cumulative is that industrialized countries waste about half the food we grow between what goes bad in the fields, doesn't make it to market, what goes bad on the way to market, what gets thrown away in the markets, what goes bad at the home and the fridges, and then we cook our food, and some of that ends up in the trash or the garbage disposal or the compost as well. Put all that together, we're wasting a ton of money and a ton of food, and uh, we want to do something about that. So I think frozen food can actually be a step in the right direction because it cuts out a lot of waste along the way and gets us fresh stuff that's pretty affordable, typically speaking, uh, and you can really have it when you need it. It's mind blowing when you think about those
0: numbers and and how many people have poor food security or stunted growth, because they don't have access to enough nourishment. What are some strategies for people at home to either reduce waste, or if they do have waste, because it is such a significant contributor to methane, to uh, greenhouse gas emissions, what are your kind of top tips for people there?
1: So if you want to cut down on food waste, the top steps are shop from a list so you don't fall prey to impulse purchases because a lot of times we know what we need when we go shopping and then we get all kinds of other things and then we don't end up eating the staples that we went for you know you get your big bunch of veggies and then you get a bunch of processed stuff and guess what you end up eating is the processed stuff and the veggies go bad so don't do that plan ahead cook in quantity make friends with leftovers You know, that saves time and energy. It doesn't take twice as long to make twice as big a batch. So batch cooking is huge. In our family, we always have some legumes and some grain in the fridge ready to rock. Sometimes even some veggies already cooked. Mix them all together with different sauces and you got dinner one night and lunch the next day. Sometimes even breakfast, I'll be honest, you know? And I think it's awesome to have food around and to keep using it. So planning ahead is great, getting those staples going. You know, and then you can also cut out food waste by making friends with the freezer yourself. So if you make a big pot of soup or casserole or something else, freeze some. And then you've got it for a tough moment when you get home from work and you're exhausted and the kids are screaming, pop it out of the freezer and have at it. You know, you don't have to make something from scratch every time. What about supplements, be it algae or vitamins and minerals
0: or superfood powders? Where, where do these types of things come in to your dietary approach?
1: A lot of the superfood powders, to be honest with you, are very dense food, but you know, you could take kale and dry it and grind it up and have a superfood powder that would probably rival just about anything out there, but because it's so widely available, we don't think of doing that. There's benefits to eating things in their fresh whole state. So yeah, some of those powders are loaded with cool antioxidants and phytonutrients, moringa powder, and you know, lots of other things, they're cool. But are they really that much more cool than eating whole foods? Not necessarily. So I'm a big fan of eating whole foods. As far as supplements specifically, you know, there are a few that seem to be difficult for some people to get, even from a really awesome diet. Not impossible, but stressful. And so if you want to really meet your needs and be sure that you're getting your needs met, so you're not playing around with your health, there are some supplements that most people should probably take. Not a lot. I don't recommend multivitamins because they have things in them that you probably shouldn't be getting. If you're eating a whole foods plant-based diet, you're getting plenty of folate, for example, and you don't need folic acid and too much folic acid can actually be cancer causing. So, uh, you know, that's an example of the kind of thing that you actually want to steer clear of if you're eating a basically healthy diet, unless you're pregnant or nursing, that's a different equation, but for everybody else. But the, the top things that most people should be thinking about are vitamin D, which is you know something we get from the sunshine. But most of us in the modern world spend a lot of time indoors or wearing clothes outside. Unless you spend 20 minutes a day, mostly naked in the sunshine, you're probably not getting your right amount of vitamin D from your body's own natural production. So taking a supplement can really help. Most of the world is deficient in vitamin D. Vitamin D is critical to your immune health. It's critical to your bone health. So you want to get that. A lot of people are deficient in vitamin B12, especially vegans or plant-based eaters. But even 20% of omnivores are deficient in vitamin B12. And that's because especially as we get older, we don't absorb it as efficiently. So taking some B12 supplement seems to really help. And actually, this is one case where the supplemental form seems to be better absorbed than getting it from food and the main foods it's in, by the way, are animal products. It's not in vegan foods for the most part with a few specific exceptions, but you can get it from supplemental form and that's generally recommended. And then, you know, omega-3 fatty acids, EPA and DHA specifically, maybe beneficial. You can get them from algae unless you eat fish, And that's a question that people have to answer for themselves, but that's the reality there. You know, there are a few others that can be points of concern, and a lot of people I know just take them just to be safe, selenium, zinc, a couple of the B vitamins sometimes, depending on, you can always get blood work done and see how things are looking. And then vitamin K2 is one that a lot of plant-based eaters aren't getting very much of. It's in natto and a little bit and some fermented soy foods, but not a lot. And K1 and K2 are actually quite different. We think of vitamin K as if it's one thing, but those are two different things. And K2 turns out to be pretty important for heart health and overall well-being. So it's easy to take a bit of a supplement. It doesn't cost a lot. So those are a few things that, you know, I like to include. And, you know, some friends of mine started a company that actually puts them all in one. It's called Compliment. So I take that, give it to my kids every day. Beautiful.
0: On that point of B12, I think that's a very interesting point. The absorption when B12 comes with protein and and it is bound up with protein, it lowers the absorption rate. So that's why the supplement form can be more effective. From a practical point of view, let's say that there is someone listening right now who is super inspired by all of this information and they lead a busy life, they have a family, perhaps they've tried in the past to change the way that they're feeding themselves and their family. I'm sure you've helped thousands and thousands of people, including friends, do exactly this, change their diet. What's the, the secret sauce to, to making things stick and, and, and making things enjoyable?
1: Well, that really is the, the million dollar question for a lot of people because the challenge isn't always knowing what to do. It's more often doing what we know, right? If, if all that was needed was we needed another lecture on why sugar is bad for you and you need to eat more vegetables, you know, we wouldn't have an obesity crisis. We wouldn't have, you know, 8 million people uh, dying of heart disease in the world this year, you know. But unfortunately, there's a big gap between what we know and what we do in many, many cases. And uh, that's where I think, you know, Some coaching, some mentorship is so critically important. And, you know, I wrote 31 Day Food Revolution, which is, you know, my best-selling book, specifically to address that, to walk people through implementing the diet and lifestyle choices that have been proven to help. And so some of the top things are, you know, you want to get rid of the bad stuff. You want to clear away and stop buying things that aren't good for you. It's amazing how often people struggle with temptation and yet they still have the the cookies in their cupboard you know and and as long as that stuff's in your home it's going to be really hard when you're tired or your willpower is weak, not to eat it. So don't bring it into your home if you can help it. Even if you live in a mixed home where other people that you live with aren't eating the way you do, try to have some segmentation where there's a shelf you don't go to, you know? It's like, that's the stuff that they eat and you just don't touch that shelf. Don't even open that cupboard. Don't open that part of the fridge, you know? Just stay elsewhere, right? And then the next thing is to, to really crowd out the bad with the good. You know, a lot of people focus on what they want to get away from instead of what they're going towards. And so make friends with good, healthy recipes that you can enjoy. And here's the thing to remember. Building a new habit, learning any new skill takes time and you're going to be awkward at first. I mean, if you want to learn a new musical instrument, be prepared to sound like crap for the first few days. You know, like that's just how it goes. Learn a new language. You're not going to be fluent but know that practice makes perfect, and, and the more you do it, the better you get. And the same is true with a new way of eating. So a lot of people are like, oh, it's so hard. Well, so is anything worth doing in life, really? It's hard work, you know? And yet, you've developed that skill, you've gotta develop that skill because your life depends on it. And here's the thing, the more you do it, the easier it gets, and the more fun it gets. There are studies showing that saliva actually changes when you eat a food a few times. So kale is an example. First time you eat kale, it'll taste kind of bitter. After about 5 to 10 times, you're secreting saliva, certain proteins in your saliva that changes when you eat kale that make it taste sweeter. And so literally, your experience of it changes. And so a lot of people start out eating healthy food and they're like, oh, I'm giving up so much pleasure. It feels like so boring. And it's like, yeah, your body is adjusting. It's going to take time. You know, when people eat less salt, food tastes boring and bland, but if you eat less salt consistently... Your body adjusts and what used to be a normal amount of salt will taste horrible to you just because your taste buds have evolved. So that's true about food in a really profound way. Habit's powerful and food preparation is similar. When you get a routine going, when you get a regular breakfast going that you don't have to think about and stress about, that's awesome. But it does take time. You know, Water tends to go into grooves over time. They turn into gullies and creeks and eventually rivers. And a, there's a powerful force to that. They can carve out canyons over time. But it didn't start out that way. And you can redirect the course of the water so that the path of least resistance pulls you in the right direction. You know, the best time to repair a roof is when the sun is shining. The best time to cultivate a new habit is when you've got a little space in your life. So think about doing it on the weekends. Develop a new recipe. Try something new. Cook and, do your shopping for the whole week. Cook, cook in quantity. Plan ahead. Don't get stranded. hungry cranky and exhausted in the middle of the week with nothing in the fridge except some junk food because guess what you're going to (laughs) do? It's not pretty.
0: Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book, plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. Some incredible advice there and you're so right, setting up our environment to make it easier and to make the unhealthier food choices harder, having a bit more resistance there is key. And I love how you, you spoke about the reward systems because that's a really important thing for everyone to understand when you're eating a lot of hyperpalatable, ultra-processed foods, sure, blueberries are going to find it hard to compete. But as you start to crowd out those ultra-processed foods, as you beautifully described, your reward systems will change. And this is not about giving up the joy and the love for food. And you will absolutely have that just with healthier foods that are nourishing your body at the same time.
1: Yeah. The art, the art is to fall in love with foods that love you back instead of you know, falling in love with abusive relationships—you <laughs> know, that that taste good but treat you like crap in the end.
0: You've had the opportunity to interview some incredible minds as part of your food summit, uh, including Dr. David Katz and and Dr. William Lee, Dr. Will Bolsowitz, who's a, a friend of this show, and many many others. What's one of the the most interesting things that you've learned in recent times about food and and our health that perhaps you didn't know and sort of blew your mind a little bit.
1: Mm. Well, one thing I find fascinating is sulforaphane. So this is a compound that's actually not in foods per se, but uh, we've got compounds that are precursors to them that are in cruciferous vegetables. So broccoli sprouts are the world's number one source of these compounds as far as concentration. But they're also high in in cabbage and collards and kale. and, And cabbage is a great, great option for most people. So here's the fascinating thing is that there's these enzymes that are in these foods. And then there's these glucosinolates. And when the two meet, which happens when you chew them raw in your mouth, you get this reaction that creates sulforaphane. And sulforaphane is one of the most potent cancer fighting compounds on the planet. And it's incredibly good for blood sugar balancing and even for cardiovascular health. It's one of the just like a miracle compound. And it may be one of the reasons why these foods specifically are so linked to longevity for so many people. But the fascinating thing is that you can't get it straight away. You have to mix these things in your mouth. It's the art of chewing. And when you cook them, you actually lose that. But here's the cool thing, too. You can cook them mostly, and you still get the glucosinolates. You're just not getting the enzymes. So you add a little bit of raw cabbage, for example, to your steamed cabbage or kale or whatever else you you may be having that's that's a cruciferous veggie, and you get the same benefits because you get that little bit, just a little sprinkling, mixed in of the raw, and then when you're chewing, that enzyme's being released and it's combining with the glucosinolates, which are still present even when it's cooked, and you get that benefit of the the sulforaphane into your body. So that's a a fun little hack, if you will. It's incredible how it
0: all works. I read a study... Another one that you can add in addition to cabbage or instead of is mustard seed powder on top of your your cooked broccoli or, or whatever will do the same sort of trick. So there's a few ways of doing that. It's very cool. You state on your, your website that the Food Revolution Network, and I think you actually mentioned this before, is committed to healthy, ethical and sustainable food for all. And sometimes I see people making out as if it's simply just a case of educating people to eat more fruits and veggies and we've sort of touched on that. But it's this is clearly a much more complex problem than that to solve. So as we sort of change gears here to thinking about the overall food environment and systems, what are the major obstacles that stand in the way of more people eating a healthy, ethical and sustainable diet? And what are the main strategies that you believe we need to adopt to
1: overcome them? This is such an important topic. We live in a world where there's a tremendous wealth gap along lines of race in particular. There's also a health gap along lines of class. And these tend to go in sync. So in the world right now, there's about 700 million people who are chronically hungry, who don't have enough basic calories to make it through the day healthfully. But there's about two billion people who are overweight or obese. And those two billion people, for the most part, are chronically malnourished as well. They're calorie rich. You don't get fat without having enough calories. But they're nutrient-starved. And the chronically hungry and the chronically overweight or obese tend, statistically, to be people who are lower income, and they're much more likely to have a darker skin color than maybe some of the wealthier, more privileged communities that don't have those issues. And this ties directly to legacies of racism and the ways that those play out in the modern world. And here's the really challenging thing For, for somebody who is struggling to make ends meet, somebody who may be working two jobs, somebody who's barely making rent. you know. In that situation, price is a big deal. And it is the reality that the cheapest calories right now at the grocery store throughout the industrialized world are typically hyper-processed junk foods. It's really cheap to buy bottled oils or to go to McDonald's. And so there's a reason for this. And that's part of what we're trying to expose. In my country, the U.S., and this is not unique. All of the industrialized countries of the world have this in common to one extent or another. Our taxpayer money is subsidizing commodities crops. We're bringing down the price, essentially a net effect of things like high fructose corn syrup, factory farmed meat, and wheat that's going into white bread. And we're creating a marketplace distortion where essentially... People have to pay extra. It's like you're being fined for wearing your seatbelt if you want to do the right thing for your health. Fruits, vegetables, nuts and seeds, organic legumes, all are costing more by proportion because they're competing in the marketplace with subsidized stuff. You know, when I talked to executives at Coca-Cola about why they're using genetically engineered high-fructose corn syrup in the US, but they're non-GMO in Europe, they said, well, it's because corn is subsidized in the United States. So we couldn't afford We wouldn't be competitive if we didn't use high fructose corn syrup in the U.S., but in Europe it's not, so it's a whole different equation. So this is is a reality that I think we're up against, and I want to see a shift. I think that if government's going to subsidize anything, it should be healthy foods that are good for people instead of the other way around. So that's one issue, but the other issue is that we've got to find ways to address the economic disparities within nations and within the global human community and create more true freedom and opportunity for everybody. And it's very hard to make a good living if you don't have your mind clear, if you don't have your energy, or if you're chronically sick. So we have these vicious feedback loops where people grow up poor, they're struggling to survive. They're not able to feed themselves well or feed their families well. And then they're, they're paying the price for that with sickness and chronic illness and suffering, which creates out of control medical costs. I know you guys are lucky enough. You don't have to worry about those personally because you have you know collective health care. In my country, we don't have that necessarily. And a lot of people go bankrupt when they can't afford to pay for their medical care costs. You know, I, I think these create these negative feedback loops where people don't have anything to leave to the next generation because sickness ate up all of their life savings at the end.
0: Let's dig into the subsidy bit first a little bit more. I think that subsidies is is something people hear about, but I'm not sure that everyone fully grasps what's happening and you mentioned taxpayer dollars there and I just want to to try and paint the picture of exactly why this is happening. What was the original purpose of these subsidies? Was it about scale and about providing enough calories? Is there, if the other side was to argue for subsidies, what would their argument be?
1: So the United States Department of Agriculture was founded, it's got a conflict of interest. It was founded to promote the sale of agricultural products in the United States to help farmers make a living and have security to promoting their products. But it's become charged with setting nutritional advice policy. And so there's a conflict of interest there. And the USDA is clear that its core mission is about the farmers and the agricultural system. Unfortunately, we're not talking about mom and dad growing their little patch of kale in their backyard and selling it at the farmer's market. We're talking about the big players because they've got the big lobbying bucks And that comes back to the folks with 20,000 acres, with, uh, you know, 50,000 head of cattle, the big operations. That's where the big money is. That's where the lobbying cloud is. And they pull the strings when it comes to government policy. And so the USDA would say that their core mission is to help the farmers. And who wouldn't want to help farmers? I mean, the people who grow our food, they work their butts off and they deserve to be supported. Right. And that's true. But The emphasis has been on the big players and the big bucks, and it hasn't given proportionate support to the smaller players. But it's also, yes, they have focused on commodities crops based on this notion that that's where the core calories are. And if we want to feed the world, we've got to focus on the corn and the soy and the wheat because those are the major, major sources of calories. Unfortunately, that's created this distortion where we now have 2 billion people who are overweight or obese, but nutrient starved in many cases because we're not focusing on nutrients and most of us get too many calories. So uh, I think that's part of the, the challenge there. But, you know, just to give you an example, Twinkies has 14 subsidized ingredients in it in this country. So th- th- this is having a major impact. There have been a lot of studies done that the poorer people are, the higher percentage of their calories is coming from subsidized food crops And most of the times, those are turned into hyper-processed junk foods. That's where most of those crops are going. Uh, And factory farms are integrally connected here. If it wasn't for subsidized corn and soy, then factory farms would not be affordable as a livestock production method because there's so much corn and soy used in those systems. But because they're subsidized, the price comes way down, suddenly it becomes affordable to waste all those calories and cycle them through livestock.
0: And then it just so happens to be that these subsidized parts of agriculture are also the major players when it comes to the planetary harm caused by our our food system. So, it becomes a, a sort of perpetual system because it's not just the food affecting human health, but it's also the breaking down of our host, the earth that is then also affecting human health in, in many ways, which is becoming more and more evident. So, I can kind of hear the cogs turning over in some of the listeners' minds here and thinking, okay, well, monocropping and industrial factory farming, they produce a lot of food very quickly and we have 8 billion mouths to feed today and 11 billion by 2050. What's the alternate path look like here? If you were to pull subsidies out of those parts of agriculture, you mentioned growing food in our backyards. I'm assuming that's not going to be the way forward for the entire world. Is this about decentralized food systems or or how do you sort of imagine this transition?
1: So, first of all, I don't want to knock how much food we can grow in our backyards. During World War II in the United States, over half our fruits and vegetables came from our backyards. And right now, more land is used for lawns than six times six times what we use for fruits and vegetables. So, you know, if we converted our lawns to fruits and vegetables, we could six-tuple our fruit and vegetable production in this country and save water too, by the way, and pesticides. So uh, let's not knock the value of backyard gardens, community gardens, local agriculture. And we are seeing this turn towards decentralization. I think that's very important and very valuable. We saw with the pandemic how vulnerable we are to long supply chains. And I think that a lot of people realize their security and being able to know where your food comes from and be able to grow it in your own backyard. And sometimes you can actually save money as well. In uh, one of the most impoverished cities in the U.S., which is Detroit. It's become the community garden capital of the United States. There's over a thousand community gardens in Detroit city limits. So sometimes people respond to poverty uh, by getting creative and growing food is one solution. But all that said, absolutely, a lot of us are still going to want farmers to grow our food. And we got other things to do with our lives. Awesome. Rock on. You may not want to grow a thing. That's okay. So if that's the case, then fine. What we need to do is kind of all of it. We We need mass production systems that get more sustainable and more humane and we need more localization we mean need more infrastructural investment in small scale and you know most of the world's food is grown by small scale farmers there are over a billion farmers in the world right now over a billion most of those folks are growing a little bit of stuff in the backyard They're, they got a chicken maybe you know maybe a goat and it's you know that's how most of the world's food is grown and by the way most of it's grown by women but in the industrialized world We have a different system where it's mechanized and we got big tractors and it's actually less efficient. We're getting less overall yield per acre and a lot less nutrition per acre, but it is monetarily efficient within the current paradigm. It takes less labor to produce a lot of food. So instead of all of us being farmers, only a handful of us are, and that's going down and down. So I think we can look at spreading that out more and and helping more of us get connected to the earth and our own ecosystems. And we can de-industrialize and have less pesticides, and here's the thing, people say, oh, organic doesn't produce as much yield per acre. And of course that's true. It's about 25% less, maybe 10% less, depending on who you talk to, but it's less. That said, we're, we're using most of our acreage for livestock right now. The vast majority of the world's agricultural land is, uh, 83%, in fact, is being used for animal agriculture to produce 18% of the world's calories and uh, 37% of the world's protein. of the agricultural land on Earth. So just supposing theoretically, Simon, that the entire world went vegan tomorrow, which you and I know is not going to happen, but let's just suppose for a second, how much land would we free up? An area of land equivalent to all of the United States, the European Union, China, and Australia combined. That's how much would be freed up instantly if the world went vegan tomorrow that's currently being used for, for livestock production. And that could go back to forest, that could, you know, help turn climate change around. That could be used for even more intensive carbon sequestration methods. It could be turned into solar panels and wind farms. It could be used to grow organic food, you know, sustainably for future generations. There's so many things we could do with it, but it's never going to do any of that as long as we're using it for livestock. And, and the bottom line is that when you convert calories up the food chain— you have loss. That's just part of how physics works. So a cow is gonna eat a lot of grain or soy or grass, and that biomass that it consumes in its life is not all gonna turn into meat. It's gonna turn into hoof and hide and bones and manure and energy and heat that the animal uses to move around. And all of that is essentially, from a caloric standpoint, it's waste. Now, there are some grasslands that can only grow grass, They wouldn't grow anything else. And so maybe livestock makes sense in some of those ecosystems. But there are a lot of places that could grow other stuff, where we've literally chopped down rainforests to make grassland. And if we could turn that back into forest, it can be a carbon sink and it can help heal our planet.
0: I think this is a very important point for people to understand. You described the inefficiency there of animal agriculture. 83% of all land that is used to produce food is dedicated to animal agriculture. It only gives us 18% of calories. It's terribly inefficient for the reasons you described. And often that sort of marginal land notion comes up in this conversation where people say well we can't use this land for anything except for grazing or for livestock and you know as you said there might be room in a better system where there are better forms of grazing like regenerative agriculture for example but i also think it is somewhat dangerous for us to have this mindset that all land is meant to produce food because that's a big assumption. And like you said, there's huge benefit in regeneration and restoring ecosystems and and not necessarily having this mindset where we dominate the land. And I think a degree of humility is almost required in terms of thinking about the earth and what we do and don't use to produce food. On the topic of supplying a growing global population with enough protein, there's a few different circles, I guess, throwing the hat in the ring as potential solutions. A lot of talk about cellular agriculture or clean meat. There's, I'm sure you're familiar with Bruce Friedrich at the Good Food Institute. There's plant-based meats, there's regenerative beef that I just mentioned. How do you sort of think about all of these various solutions?
1: You know, I'm a fan of anything that works. You know, I mean, our world is in dire straits. You know, we're on a path to levels of climate chaos that most of us can hardly fathom but i live in california united states and our state's burning and we're running out of water and we produce most of the fruits and vegetables in my country and it's scary you know uh i most of the people in this state are living choked with smoke throughout the entire summer that's carcinogenic that's that's creating health problems for generations to come and uh you know i know you guys have had big fires out in Australia as well. You know what I'm talking about? We have 1.4 billion people are likely to be environmental refugees in the next two generations because of coastal flooding and you know even our, our water supplies getting salinated as the salt water intrudes and so this is serious stuff and in that context I think we've got to do whatever we can it will work to help turn things around. I'm not interested in dangerous solutions that create bigger problems, but I'm interested in real solutions that actually work. And uh, personally, you know, I don't want to kill animals for food if I don't need to. Uh, I'm a big fan of eating lighter on the lower on the food chain for ethical reasons. If regenerative agriculture with, you know, beef production was the answer, I'd, Gladly support it whether or not I would partake personally. However, unfortunately, the data is showing that in the long run, the best we've got with rotational grazing and so called regenerative agriculture can be a net carbon benefit in the short run and about neutral in the long run. And that's the best we've got, but it still takes a lot of land. And we can do better with that land. You know, there are things we could grow on that land and ways we could harvest that would take carbon out of the atmosphere and put it into the soil much more rapidly and much more permanently. The trouble with livestock is that they are constantly belching and farting, and that methane has a major uh, climate impact. So it's very hard to make up for that. So yes, ruminant animals handled properly can you know, sequester carbon out of the atmosphere into the soil. But again, it's an uphill battle because they're also belching methane all day long. So I don't think it's an answer, but it can be better than conventional meat, which is an environmental disaster. However, lab growing meat, I think the jury's still out. There's a lot of people working on it. I wish them the best, honestly, coming up with something that's actually safe and that's actually sustainable. We're not there yet, not even close. But maybe they'll get there, and if they do, then I'll be curious. I'm not going to be the first person to try it, but I'm open-minded as far as, uh, you know, all the Beyond Meat and all the meat substitutes that are on the market today. You know what? They're processed foods. They're definitely better for the animals. They're definitely better for the environment. I think there's no doubt about that. But as far as human health, the jury's still out how that compares to meat. And meat is not a health food. So I don't think that Beyond Burgers or you know Impossible Burgers are health foods either. But there's some things to be said for them. And I think as a transitional step for a lot of people, they can help. You know what? Again, you did the best you can. If you want to have a steak now and then or have a Beyond Burger now and then, you know, fine. The food police aren't going to tear open your fridge and send you off to jail. You know, you get to do the best you can with what you got. And But at the end of the day, I, I don't think these are necessarily the answer. I think the answer is basing our diet around whole plant foods, lots of legumes, whole grains, fruits and vegetables, some nuts and seeds. Base your diet around that. And uh, if you want to have a little bit of fish or whatever else on the side, you know, that, that, that could make some sense. Uh, but it's not going to be you know where you turn for the basis of your calories if you're wanting to walk lightly on the earth and, and leave a brighter future for your kids.
0: Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant. I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. The compared to what questions always quite interesting when plant-based meats come up or even regenerative beef, as you just mentioned then, if you're comparing it to factory farmed you know, livestock, uh, agriculture, then regenerative beef looks great. But there are other options and ways to use that land. And same thing with the plant based burger. I mean, if you're comparing it to a, a sort of standard American beef burger, then it is a step in the right direction. I think there was a study recently, it's the first study that I've seen looked at this uh, out of Stanford University, and they compared a Beyond Burger with organic beef, grass fed beef. And they did see over the, the period of the trial that when people were eating the plant-based beyond products, they had improvements in cardiovascular disease risk markers, uh, markers of, of, of disease risk. So again, compared to what are those plant-based burgers as good as legumes? Probably not, but they still serve a role, I think. Tell me about Baskin Robbins. And, and this is a hypothetical question. Right. So don't take offense to this. If your dad didn't walk away from Baskin Robbins and you're running it today, let's say you're you're the CEO today. I'm interested in this because it kind of speaks to maybe what companies like this could be thinking about. If you're in charge of this company that is, you know, has probably four or five thousand plus doors around the world, is a giant in ice cream where is the future for a company like this? What would you do as a CEO in terms of innovation or the, the sort of path forward?
1: Well, I mean, it's tricky when your core business model is in uh, marketing to an audience that wants momentary pleasure. It, so it's it's a challenging proposition. But, you know, what I would probably aim to do is number one, source from dairy farms, that uh, the cows are treated humanely, you know, go organic with the dairy. You know, it, it's interesting how I think organic animal products are particularly impactful because of the level of cruelty involved in industrialized animal agriculture and the environmental impact of it. So, you know, sourcing in organic dairy, which of course would raise the price of the product quite a bit, but then I'd balance that out by having more plant-based options where the price might be lower, you know, and that would help. And we'd focus on plant-based options that are based on fruit and nuts and seeds for the creaminess. And we get really busy seeing if we can create something that has no chemicals and no added sugars and that tastes amazing. And, you know, I'll tell you, my family does that uh, all the time. We make our own homemade ice creams and we blend up bananas is usually a good base. Toss in, you know, a little soy milk to just make it blend up. Maybe some nuts or not, and then add in some mango or some strawberries or you know, other frozen fruits. All frozen by the way, except for the maybe soy milk. And you end up with a soft serve, really creamy, amazingness. You can also put in some vanilla, some nutmeg, go a little bit more savory-ish, get something a little more delicate in the flavor profile. So good. So, you know, we we do those sometimes we'll do two layers, you know, do more of a banana vanilla base and then and then in a cone, and then stick some, you know, mango on top, all blended up. You know, our kids love this stuff. So I think people could learn and the consumer could learn to really like these things, especially if it's combined with an education. It would be quite a journey to rebrand a company like that as a place you go if you want to get healthy. You know, but, but it could be done and maybe they could even be a leader in finding some sort of superfood, you know, frozen desserts that are, that, you know, get some really interesting exotic superfoods in there and mix them. And obviously prices are going to go up if they start doing that and profits are going to go down and that's going to change the consumer profile. You know, it's a tough slog, but here's the bottom line. You know, the way I look at it, food 1.0 is about survival. If you can get enough calories to fill your belly, that's success. Food 2.0 is about commerce. It's about the buying and selling of goods. That's what Baskin-Robbins is all based on. And consumer is king. And low prices and good flavor and high volume are are the keys. And food 2.0 has brought us a lot of options, but unfortunately it's morally bankrupt and it's killing us. So food 3.0 is about health, health for our bodies and health for our planet. And I think there's healthy profits in it. But they come from healthy food. So the food industry has got to learn how to make that transition. And I've spoken with senior executives from Nestle and Mars and, you know, a lot of the other major brands. And some of them are in a pickle. And what they're trying to do is diversify. So they're they're buying up the natural brands that have a different kind of market penetration and trying to take them bigger. So, you know, Coca-Cola bought Honest Tea and took it to scale you know, and quadrupled or more the sales of Honest Tea by using their huge distribution platform. And Honest Tea is organic and uses very little sweetener. And in a sense, you could say it's competing with Coke, but now that Coke owns both, they win either way. And so I think uh, what we're seeing is that more and more of the mainstream big food companies are trying to take an interest in the natural sector. And whether that's good or bad is arguable, but one thing it does do is take away some of the conflict of interest, where now they're just trying to, you know, make a buck Rather than trying to push the consumer towards junk food,
0: mm. you got me hungry with that list of all those different nice cream blends. I've been <laughs> ha- I've been doing a uh, a banana nice cream with pistachios recently, and that's uh, that's been a bit of a, a favourite at home. Something else I think is interesting. Again, it's early days, but for people to look at is I've seen this sort of emerging, and this is similar to the cellular agriculture clean meat, this emerging area of precision fermentation. There's a company in Australia called All G Foods and there's one in America called Perfect Day, which by all reports are, they're essentially producing cow-free dairy products that they hope to be able to scale and, and eventually be cheaper than traditional dairy. So that's a cool space to watch and and hopefully what they're planning does come to light because it would mean we could significantly reduce all of those, you know, factory farm dairy farms as you say are not ethical and and are terrible for the environment. I'm interested in your thoughts on individual action and sustainability. What does it mean to live sustainably as an individual today and and how important are the dollars that you and I and the, and the listeners that we go out and spend on, on various things every day.
1: So obviously it's all a question of scale and perspective, right? I mean, Helen Keller said, I'm only one person and I cannot do everything, but just because I can't do everything doesn't mean I'll refuse to do that, which I can you know, at one level, everything you do is just a drop in the bucket from a collective standpoint. I mean, there's 8 billion people on the planet. So, you know, how big an impact can you really have, right? Well, probably a much bigger impact than most if you live in an industrialized country or you have the financial resources to perhaps live a bit of a bigger life than the average person on the planet. But still, obviously, it's it's not everything. That said, there's something about being on the right side of history. There's something about bringing your life into integrity with your core values that changes the way you feel about yourself. You know, do you wanna be a part of the problem or do you wanna be a part of the solution? And how does that change your self-esteem and your self-respect and your sense of hope? And here's, here's the fascinating thing, Simon. In my experience, people have hope when they are doing something constructive. People tend to give up hope when they don't. So we all see the madness and violence in the world. It's big and it's overwhelming and sometimes it's pretty scary. But those of us who are being a part of something positive uh, discover that hope is more of a verb than a noun. It's not a spectator sport that you get on the sidelines from calculating that everything is going to go the way you want it to or your team's going to win because you don't have control over that in any way, shape, or form. But when you're actually playing, you have hope. As long as there's breath in your lungs and blood in your veins, you have hope in your life for what's possible. And I believe that hope is contagious and positive action is contagious. A leader, to my eyes, is a trendsetter, is a changemaker, not because they tell a bunch of people to do what they do, but because they follow their own conscience or their own values and they inspire others to do likewise. And when it comes to food, we are very social creatures and we're heavily influenced by those around us. And right now, we are actually part of a tipping point that's happening in the world. The number of people in the world who are going plant-based is stunning. According to one recent major food industry publication, a research report, 70% of the people in the industrialized world are wanting to eat less or no animal products. 70%. That wasn't the case five years ago. So we're watching historic change happening right now. The number of people who identify as vegan in the United States has increased sixfold in the last 10 years. Sixfold. So there's a lot of change happening, and every person who chooses to eat less beef and more beans who chooses to eat more whole foods and less processed junk is actually changing market forces. You're changing the supply chain so that more healthy food will be grown and marketed so that more markets will change what they sell, more restaurants will change what they serve, and you're influencing the people around you in ways you may have never imagined to say it is cool to care and you're part of the solution. And so you literally can be a cultural trendsetter just by making a pivot like that. And the entire food industry is responding right now. The CEO of Nestle told me a few weeks ago that he thinks that in the next few years, 10 to 30% of the $1.5 trillion meat industry is going plant-based. In the next few years, the entire food industry is getting ready for this. And they're investing billions upon billions of dollars in plant-based options. Not because they had some epiphany and said, oh my God, we've got to save the world. No, because consumer demand is shifting and they're trying to be on the front end of it and they're watching the market trends and the market research and they're trying to respond to it. Well, guess who made that market research and market trend happen? It's people who care and learn just like we're doing right now and they start putting that into action. So in my view, what you do matters tremendously for your own sense of integrity and values and for the example that it sets and for the influence that it has. And there is no way to quantify how powerful that may be. Be because it may only take five percent of us making a shift to make fifty percent of us start to make that shift. Because that's what leadership is.
0: Beautifully put. Be the change that you wish to see in the world. I think that's a a fantastic place to bring this one to a close. Ocean. It's been a real pleasure getting to know your story, your wealth of knowledge, so many valuable insights. Thank you so much for joining. If folks would like to connect with you, learn more about the Food Revolution Network, where's the best place for them to go?
1: So the best thing to do is to grab a copy of 31 Day Food Revolution Heal Your Body, Feel Great, and Transform Your World. It's available in bookstores. It's available online. It's published around the world. Again, that's 31 Day Food Revolution. It walks you through implementing all that we're talking about today so you can really get these results in your life. Every chapter ends with action steps you can take to apply what you're learning. We, We walk you through how you can get rid of the bad stuff, how you can nourish your body with the good stuff, how you can gather your food community and build healthy social fabric to help you sustain healthy food choices, and how you can change the world, how we can be a part of the transformation on the planet every day with your knife and fork. Number two, go to foodrevolution.org. That's foodrevolution.org. Check out our website. We have hundreds and hundreds of blog articles on there that are completely free search on there. You'll find all kinds of fascinating topics completely for free. We also have online courses, Food Revolution Summit every year, lots and lots of masterclasses and other great resources. Go ahead and sign up for our email list on there so you can get up to date on all of it and stay in touch. And then remember, you really are part of the Food Revolution every time you choose real food over processed junk. Every time you choose to participate with your own knife and fork in building a better world, you're with us. So it's not about just joining some organization. It's about identifying as a part of a movement. And I thank you for every step you take and every dollar you spend and every bite you take that's congruent with your values.
0: Thank you, Ocean. Let's do this again.
1: All righty, Simon. Thank you so so much.
0: There we go. How did that one land for you? I hope that you found it interesting, instructive, illuminating, all the things. Of course, if you did, please do share with your friends and family on the socials. The more people that we can help together, the better. And while you're there, make sure that we're connected too. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at plant underscore proof. That's at plant underscore proof. And on that lovely note, it's time to bring this one to a close. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I appreciate you and I look forward to repeating it all again in a few days time. Until then, remember, more plants, my friends, more plants.